following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, Go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Good morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn with me to Mark chapter 11. Mark 11. We've been journeying through the gospel according to Mark for many months. In the first half of the book, we we saw Mark emphasize who Jesus is. And here in the second half, we're seeing him focus on what Jesus has come to do. And in our previous passage, at the beginning of chapter 11, we saw time slow down. It's like Mark slows down his camera to focus on not the final year or the final month, but the final week of the life of Jesus. So we are in his final days here in Mark chapter 11, right after he's entered Jerusalem on a donkey as a king, but not the kind of king that the people expected. Here's what I think is the main idea of Mark 11, 12 to 25. The main idea of the the passage and therefore of this message. Jesus is unimpressed with the leaves of religious appearance. Jesus is unimpressed with the leaves of religious appearance. He's looking for fruit. We're going to think about this main idea in three points as we journey through this story. First, a symbolic tree. We'll see that in verses 12 to 14. Second, a spiritual circus. That's verses 15 to 19. And third, a striking promise, verses 20 to 25. A symbolic tree, a spiritual circus, and a striking promise. First, a symbolic tree. Look there at 
verse 12. The, the next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it wasn't the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. I mean, no matter how we look at this, there's no use kidding ourselves. This is a bizarre scene. I mean, what in the world is going on? Well, if we understand how Israel in the Hebrew scriptures is described, and we understand that what Jesus does here with this fig tree is directly linked to what he's about to do in the temple, then it will all start to seem a little less random, less bizarre. So what is this background we we need to have in mind as Jesus approaches, as we approach with Jesus, this unsuspecting tree? Well, listen to the words of the prophet Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah. You don't have to turn there, but I'll start reading in Jeremiah 8, verse 10. This was actually our scripture reading earlier in the service. Jeremiah 8, starting in verse 10. Listen to how God describes Israel, his covenant people. From the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Are they ashamed of their detestable conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They don't even know how to blush. So they will fall among the fallen. They will be brought down when they are punished, says the Lord. I will take away their harvest, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vines. And here it is. There will be no figs on the tree and their leaves will wither. What I've given them will be taken from them. From Jeremiah to Isaiah to Micah to Zechariah, the prophets are often comparing Israel to a vineyard or a fig tree. And so in Mark 11, when Jesus comes up on this tree, he's not being just some random first century cranky rabbi. He's functioning as a divine prophet. He's dramatizing, acting out a parable. In this part of the world, figs would, would grow in basically two stages. There was an early season and a late season for figs. And even in the early stage, even before, before fig season was really officially begun, you could find these sweet-tasting little nubs on the tree, the promise of what is to come. And the way you knew that you would find those sweet-tasting little nubs even before fig season was here, the way you knew you would find something is that you saw leaves. You saw leaves. The presence of leaves meant you're going to find fruit. And leaves is exactly what Jesus sees on this tree. In fact, notice this detail. He sees the leaves on the tree from afar. Do you see that? It doesn't say he bumps up into this tree or he sees it from up close. It says in the distance, he sees these leaves. 
That's how many there are. That's how much promise this fig tree has. But when Jesus arrives and looks underneath the foliage, he sees nothing. It's a picture of God's people. Though Israel showed outward signs of bearing fruit, those who came spiritually hungry found none. A fig tree, if you think about it, with lots of leaves and no fruit, is diseased. There's something wrong with it. It's diseased, and therefore it's deceptive. It's engaging in a kind of false advertising. Other trees may be barren, but not me. Look at my leaves. Come find fruit here. So Jesus pronounces judgment on this tree as a way of pronouncing judgment, prophetically and symbolically pronouncing judgment on Israel. Friends, he does not tolerate spiritual fruitlessness. Spiritual fruitlessness. People who claim God's name, who profess and perform, but don't produce. I'm reminded here of the logic. You know that lesser to greater logic he deploys in the Sermon on the Mount? Remember what he says in Matthew 6? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And then he says, see how the flowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin. And if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? And what we encounter in Mark 11, I think, is that exact same logic, just negatively, in the, in the reverse, from a negative angle. If Jesus judges a fig tree for failing to bear fruit, how much more will he judge us? Fruitfulness, fruitfulness, which is a word Christians like to use and talk about, but I think we often misunderstand it. I mean, fruitfulness here at RCBC is, is not finally about how many conversions or baptisms we see, though we, of course, pray for that. But of the 60 times, the 60 times in the New Testament that the word fruit appears, precisely zero is referring to numbers, what we tend to think of when we think of fruit. Not one. The test of fruitfulness, according to this passage, is not how impressive we look, how many leaves we have, what our numbers are, but whether or not we're hypocrites. It's about whether the texture of our life together in this church is marked by things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, the fruit of the Holy Spirit among us. As members of this church, we're, we're not just responsible for our own fruit. I think it's easy to you know, think about those fruit of the Spirit and assume that they're just these sort of individualized things. But of course, Paul gives them to Galatian congregations in Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit is a shared crop. 
And as members of this church, we're responsible not only for our own spiritual growth, but for others. We're responsible for the well-being, the flourishing, the blooming of others in the faith. Now, this doesn't mean that that Jesus is dispatching us to to be kind of spiritual fruit police and inspecting others' lives in order to find evidences of immaturity, but it does mean we're called to care. It does mean we're called to be family, to realize that any one of us can only bloom and grow if we're doing so together. If you claim to be a Christian and have no intention of joining a church, being vitally grafted into it, then all I can say with respect, friend, is the Bible has no positive category for you. There's just no such thing in the Bible as a perpetually fruitless Christian or a perpetually churchless Christian, and the two tend to go together. The fruitless are churchless, and the churchless are fruitless. Oh, if you mean to follow Jesus, if you want to bear fruit for his glory, with, which if you, if you claim to be a Christian, I, I trust that describes you, if you want to please your king, then submit your life to one of his embassies. Submit your life to a healthy local church. I'm not just saying this because of the membership class today at 3.30. As I was typing this, I realized, ah, oh, this is going to seem very convenient application. Uh, you are welcome to come if you want to, to learn more about membership at this church. But listen to me, hear me. You don't have to join this church, but you do if you belong to Jesus, need to join a church. Look, I know that in an anti-commitment age, anti-authority age, such a step might feel scary, constricting, confining, but friends, in the wisdom, in the brilliance, in the design of God, meaningful church membership is his greenhouse for spiritual growth. And members of RCBC, Jesus will evaluate us. This is a sobering lesson. Lesson. This is not just a, a sort of historical tidbit on ancient Israel. We need to make eye contact with this passage. And what this is pressing on our hearts is that Jesus will evaluate us not based on whether he saw an impressive display of leaves. Programs, activities, trips, studies, baptisms, good things. But he's not going to finally evaluate us on the basis of leaves, but on whether our corporate life yielded spiritual fruit. Not just the fruit of busyness, but the fruit of holiness. A symbolic tree. Number two, number two, a spiritual circus. Verse 15, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts. Okay, let's Let's stop there and picture and even hear the sounds of this scene. These courts are the outermost part of the temple complex, an area reserved for Gentiles. That means non-Jews. And it's massive, 35 acres, the length of three football fields just in length. And it's not just massive and sprawling, it's also 
mayhem, sheer mayhem. This is the time of year when Jews and God-fearing Gentiles were streaming to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was swelling with a population six, seven, some scholars say ten times its normal size for the Passover festival. And here's what's going on in this temple complex. Every family that's arrived needs to buy some things, not least of which is a lamb, an animal sacrifice, or if you're poor, a dove, and you can't use pagan currency from your homeland. The people in the temple don't want your pagan currency. You've got to exchange it and turn it into something fit for temple use. And Israel's priests are not about to miss out on this golden annual opportunity. Behind the scenes, they're in league with the money changers and the animal sellers to charge exorbitant rates, to cheat the people, to cheat the nations, and of course, take a cut for themselves. So do you see what's going on? Over time, the Lord's house had become this bustling Middle Eastern bazaar and a giant money-making operation. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that one Passover, there were 255,000 lambs bought, sold, and sacrificed in the temple courts. I mean, just imagine the, 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 the noise. Imagine the chaos. Imagine the smells. This is like a, a Wall Street trading floor and a county fair all in one. This is no sanctuary. This is no longer a sanctuary. This has become a circus. Middle of verse 15, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and wouldn't allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. In our last sermon, we saw Jesus riding into Jerusalem as a what? As a king. And in the previous scene, which we just looked at, he's pronouncing judgment on the fig tree as a what? As a prophet. And here we see him exercising his rightful authority over the temple as a priest. The word there in verse 15 for driving out is not a sweet, tame little word. It's the same word used elsewhere by Mark to describe casting out demons. As prophet, priest, and king, Jesus is here He's in the temple, and he is aghast. He is indignant at the lack of fruit beneath the leaves. Verse 17, and he, as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you've made it a den of robbers. Jesus calls to the witness stand two heavy hitters, <laughs> Two towering figures from Israelite history, Isaiah and Jeremiah. His first quote comes from Isaiah 56. It was our call to worship earlier in the service where God says of foreigners who bind themselves to him, Isaiah 56, 7, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. Why? For my house will be called 
a house of prayer for all nations. But seven centuries later, as Jesus is walking into the temple courts on this Monday morning, Isaiah's description is not what he sees. What he sees, rather, is the fulfillment of Jeremiah 7, where God thunders this warning. Listen to what God says in Jeremiah 7. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you haven't known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I've been watching, declares the Lord. That sounds familiar. We heard it in our scripture reading earlier in the service. Jesus is saying the temple of the living God has devolved to what Jeremiah warned about. We're back in Jeremiah 7. It's not a light. The temple is not what it was meant to be. It's not a light for the nations. It's a cave, a hideout for religious outlaws. See, we often call this, and I'll call it this later in the sermon. It's fine language, but we often refer to this as the what of the temple, the cleansing of the temple. But fundamentally, it's the condemnation of the temple. Friends, there is no wickedness like religious wickedness. There is no wickedness like religious wickedness. And the cesspool of religious wickedness, it's not always as flamboyant and noticeable as this first century circus, but the cesspool of religious wickedness doesn't just appear overnight. It's downstream from a slow and steady trickle of religious performance, from empty rituals practiced by those who have lost sight of what it's all about. We're a young church. We're we're not even a year and a half old. And so it might be easy for us to think, well, this is not our problem. We don't have old customs and traditions. We're not in danger of things just becoming rote. But that's exactly what the evil one wants us to assume. We're not too young to ask this question. What things in our life together as a church have just become rote? Maybe there were good reasons for them. Maybe there are good reasons for them, but our hearts have grown disengaged. What things might we be doing just to do them? If we're not vigilant, we could become like the first century temple. Not to that extreme, but we could become, this happens to churches all the time, we could become an increasingly busy hive of religious activity, doing good things for all the wrong reasons. Well, let's beware beloved, of of hearts that click into autopilot and just start to do things because it's what Christians do, and we lose sight of why we've gathered in the first place 
why we're Christians in the first place, why God has established churches in the first place so that we might mutually together enjoy and know intimately the gospel of grace and the Lord of love. Something else we need to notice here, only in Mark's gospel do we find that little phrase in verse 17, for all nations. We don't get that phrase in Matthew, Luke, or John. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. In other words, only Mark quotes Isaiah 56, 7 in full. And I imagine, we, we, we can't know for sure, I imagine it's because of his audience. He's writing to a primarily Roman, Gentile audience. So, so what's the significance of this, this little three-word phrase in English? Well, first, in order to understand the significance of this phrase, we, we have to understand the significance of something bigger. We have to understand the significance of the temple itself. And to do that, we, we've got to rewind the clock a bit. So buckle up. You're not going to have to turn to all these places. But I do want you to feel a little overwhelmed. I want you to feel the cumulative effect of Scripture's consistent witness about this single theme. And this is not nearly all I could say about it, trust me. I cut like a third of this sermon uh, to make it manageable for you. In Genesis 2, God creates a garden for the first man and first woman, a place to dwell in unbroken fellowship with him. In other words, Eden was a sanctuary. Eden was the first temple, the archetype of the temple. Adam and Eve weren't Israelites. Adam and Eve were representative humans, which means that Eden was meant to point beyond itself. It was meant to picture something. It was meant to picture a world where all people dwell intimately with God. But by the very next page in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve want none of this. They, they are rebelling against this God, turning their back on him. And so, as rightful punishment, they're kicked out. They're evicted. They're banished from this garden temple, never to return again. In fact, God blocks the way back by stationing at Eden's entrance a guardian angel. Not the kind to protect you, but the kind to protect God's holy presence, his sanctuary from being defiled by human sin. But even in the darkness of Genesis 3. And it's, it's a dark story. So dark, we, it's like we can barely see our hand in front of our faces. We are in the darkness, but we can see, if we look carefully, a glimmer of hope. The Lord promises to Eve in Genesis 3.15, which is a load-bearing verse in your Bible. If you're a Christian and Genesis 3.15 doesn't yet ring a bell, I'd encourage you to familiarize yourself with it. Memorize it this week. And you'll start to see how it unfolds and finds fulfillment throughout the unfolding story of Scripture. Genesis 3.15, the Lord promises to Eve that one day a descendant is going to come from her line and is going to crush Satan's head. He's going to deliver a death blow to the devil, which leaves us there in the midst of the rubble and wreckage of the fall in Genesis 3, hoping, wondering, will this future deliverer win back 
access into that closed garden sanctuary? Will this future deliverer reopen the way into the very presence of God? Fast forward to Genesis 12, right on the heels of the Tower of Babel debacle where God confuses the languages and scatters the nations across the face of the earth and he plucks out one man and hands him this promise. Genesis 12, starting in verse 1, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. You will be a blessing. Verse 3, Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And here it is. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. As the story unfolds, it becomes clear that the way God is going to do this, the way he's going to make good on this promise to Abraham, the way he's going to bless the peoples, to reclaim them, to redeem them, is through that same deliverer from Genesis 3.15, who's going to descend not just from Eve, but from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah and David. In other words, he will come from Israel and then from Israel, he will mediate blessing to all the nations on earth. God eventually makes a covenant with the nation of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai and the Israelites are commissioned as a kingdom of priests, a nation set apart, set apart from the rest to model what it looks like. To worship the Lord. But you keep reading the story and you find that Israel wasn't so good of a model. Their failure to do this, their sin, their idolatry becomes the key, the key that unlocks the floodgates of God's mercy. It's not like Israel sinned, sinned and then God came up with mercy. I mean, we see mercy even before Israel hits the scene in the Bible. All right, there is no plan B with God. But as Israel is sinning and turning their back on God, God gives them, what we thought about last week, a tabernacle, a a mobile tent, and it becomes the key that unlocks the problem of how a holy God can mingle with unholy people. As Colton described last week, animal sacrifices were necessary in that tabernacle, to defer God's righteous wrath. And then after the reign of King David, the temple, a permanent dwelling place for God, is built. The sacrifices resume, but guess what? Nothing changes. Israel continues rebelling against God, and so finally God makes good on his warnings And he evicts the people, not just from Eden, but from the land. God removes the people and his very presence from the temple altogether. We are a long way from Eden, aren't we? We're a long way from Eden. The bad news of scripture, friend, the bad news is that there is nothing you can do. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing anyone can do to end our exile. We, we couldn't make the journey. We can't make the journey back to God. But the good news is that he came to us. 
It's no coincidence that when the Apostle John describes this divine arrival, this invasion into our world, Merry Christmas, this is what it's about, he says, the eternal word became flesh and tabernacled among us. John 1.14, God's holy presence residing not in a tent or a temple, but in a person. In Jesus, do you see what this is saying that according to the New Testament, according to Mark, we've seen this on page after page in this very series, in Jesus, the kingdom of God, the nature of God, the word of God has made a personal appearance on earth to bring us back into the paradise we lost, which is why throughout his ministry from stilling storms to forgiving sins, Jesus is constantly, constantly, constantly saying and doing what only God has the right to say and do. And by walking into the temple on this Monday morning and acting like he owns the place, (laughs) he's suggesting that, yes, in fact, I do. He can do away with the whole temple apparatus. He can do away with, with all of it. Why? Because it's all just scaffolding awaiting his arrival. And he has now come. He's come to fulfill its purpose and to make it gloriously obsolete. As Jesus says in John's gospel to the religious leaders, remember that when they demand a sign to prove his authority? Remember remember the sign he gives them? Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he'd spoken of was his body. That's ultimately what this scene in the temple is all about. And we needed all that background to understand the force and the significance of what's actually going on. Jesus is judging false worship, yes, but he's also saying, now the true meeting place between God and man is me. And as we keep flipping pages in the New Testament, we see that those who are united to Jesus by faith become as individuals and corporately as churches, temples of the living God. Where is the body of Christ now? How would you answer that question? Where is the body of Christ now? Well, his physical body is in heaven, but his spiritual body is on earth. In fact, it's right here among us in the local church, and it is to the church, to his church that Jesus entrusts his authority and promises his presence. As he puts it, where just two or three, a congregation of just two or three are gathered to exercise the keys of the kingdom, there I am among them. I'm sending you to make disciples of all nations by baptizing and teaching, and it's going to be hard. These are the most daunting marching orders in human history. I'm sending you to baptize, to teach, to make disciples. But don't forget this. You're not going alone. I'm coming too. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. So what is God's temple now in the new covenant era? Is it God's only begotten son or is it God's church 
Yes. Together, we are God's temple. We are God's temple where he specially dwells on earth. Why? Because of our union with God's son who dwelt with him for all eternity. Brothers and sisters, this means that on Sundays, God's temple gathers here for worship. And on Mondays, God's temple scatters around this city for worship and witness for mission. But there's one more chapter in this saga that's not yet here. Listen to the very end of the book, Revelation 21, as John describes paradise, the garden city to come. I didn't see a temple in the city. I didn't see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city doesn't need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Do you see how this is the foil of what we see in the court of the Gentiles as the nations are being distracted and turned away? Revelation 21, 27, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what's shameful or deceitful, but only those names which are written in the Lamb's book of life. And do you know what the dimensions of that garden city will be? According to Revelation, the dimensions of the garden city will be a perfect cube, same in height, length, and width. Why do I share that? Well, because there's only one other perfect cube in the whole Bible. The innermost room of the tabernacle, the temple, the most holy place, the holy of holies, where God's unmediated presence resided. So do you see what Revelation is saying? By describing the new Jerusalem with the same dimensions as the Holy of Holies, it's saying that one day God's glory is going to spill out and fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. The whole world is going to become a holy of holies. And all of this will be possible because Christ's death on the cross tore apart the curtain. That ancient symbol of separation tore it into reopening the way to paradise. And not only is the physical curtain torn, but Paul in Ephesians 2 says that Jesus did a demolition job also on the dividing wall of hostility that stood between Jews and Gentiles. And so it's no coincidence that Jesus' temple cleansing occurs in the outer court of the Gentiles. He's saying to Israel, Look at yourselves. Rather than being a light to the nations, you're pushing them out. They're coming. The nations are streaming. They're coming. They're wanting to be refreshed. They're seeing leaves, but finding no fruit. All you've got going on is, Jesus says, all you've got going on here is just a self-serving charade. The Jews were all about the Messiah, getting rid of their enemies. They were fine with that. That's what they wanted. That's what they expected. They were all about a Messiah walking into the court of the Gentiles of all places. Yes, please go there. Get rid of our enemies. 
just don't get rid of our sin. See, the, the Messiah the Israelites wanted would have been a Messiah who came and cleansed the, gen, cleansed the temple of the nations, but the Messiah they needed showed up and cleansed the temple for the nations. And where are the nations today? And America is one of them. We, we, we dare not equate ourselves with Israel in this passage and act like every other nation. No, that's not how you read your Bible. Where are the nations today? Well, within this nation, America, the nations are all around us. One of the things that compelled Megan and me to move to Richmond was the sizable international presence, international population here in this city. VCU alone has over 1,300 internationals on student visas from 112 countries. There are roughly 5,000 Muslims here in the metro area, more than 16,000 Hispanics. Since COVID began, some 1,200 Afghan refugees have settled in our city. Interestingly, the top two countries represented here in Richmond are El Salvador and India. Last year in Richmond City Schools, we're talking elementary to high school students, 2,500 of them speak English as a second language. Christians are called to go to the nations. We preach that. I could easily preach that. But let's not overlook the fact that the nations are coming here. Just imagine the potential of our gospel service and gospel witness just here in Richmond if we simply seek out, if we slow down enough to seek out those Jesus, all of those Jesus came to save. Let's pray that we would never be a church that exists merely for ourselves, a hive of ministry, activity that's busy but empty, with more promise than substance, more leaves than fruit. Well, how does everyone there respond to Jesus's eruption of righteous anger? Again, this was no temper tantrum. This was a prophetic response to his people's sin. How does he respond? Verse 18, or how do others respond? Verse 18, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began to repent. No. They began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. They're still set. We, the, the showdown began in Mark chapter 3, three Mark chapter three, verse 6, where the Pharisees and the Herodians started plotting with one another, echoes of Psalm 2, nations raging against the Lord's anointed one, plotting together how they're going to overthrow and destroy Jesus, and it's coming to a resolution they're set on destroying the true temple. They're set on destroying the true sacrifice. The only way they and the whole world can be welcomed into the presence of God. A symbolic tree, a spiritual circus, and third and most briefly, a striking promise. A striking promise. Verse 20. In the morning as they went along, 
they saw the fig tree withered. So this is, this is Tuesday morning. This is the next morning. They saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered. So why is Peter talking? Because the Gospel of Mark is the memoirs of Peter. So Peter, this is eyewitness testimony. Peter saying to Mark, hey, get this. Here's, here's what I said. I remember it vividly. He said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. This is the only time in the Bible when Jesus performs a destruction miracle. And we've already seen why. It's a judgment on Israel. And that's why Mark places it both before and after the temple cleansing. He brackets what happens in the temple um, with what happens in the temple to what happens with the fig tree. In other words, the cursing of the fig tree, verses 12 to 14, and the withering of the fig tree, verses 20 and 21, the cursing and the withering provide the framing and interpretation for what occurs in the middle when Jesus walks into the temple itself. And again, this is not just ancient history. It has everything to do with you. Listen to me, friend. If you fail to heed the Lord's warning in this passage, which speaks even today, which rings out through time to you this morning, if you fail to heed his warning to those who merely put on airs, to those who play religion, then make no mistake, you too will wither just like this tree. But you can bow to Jesus in faith. I mean, that's not your only option to wither like this tree. You can this morning bow to Jesus in faith and be spared and be made fit by God, made fit to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Well, how does Jesus respond to Peter's exclamation? Remember, Peter says, look, I can't believe it, Jesus. The, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Verse 22, have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and doesn't doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. These verses have sparked much confusion and even, frankly, some dangerous misapplication at times. But what I think Jesus is saying is actually quite simple. If, if we read it in context, many scholars have pointed out that Jesus does not say, this is why it's so important to read our Bibles carefully, Jesus does not say in verse 23, truly I tell you if anyone says to any mountain, but specifically to this mountain, that is the temple mount. Perhaps he's standing on the Mount of Olives from which he can see both the temple mount and the Dead Sea. And he's speaking poetically. Remember, he's functioning as a prophet in this passage. He's speaking poetically like a prophet. And he's saying this, Peter, disciples, if you think a destroyed fig tree is impressive, how about a destroyed temple? Do you have enough faith for that? I mean, when else in Mark's gospel 
have we heard something familiar? When else have we heard something being cast into the sea? How about Mark chapter 5, when the demonized pigs run off the cliff and drown in the sea? Or more recently, chapter 9, when Jesus warns, if anyone causes a little one who believes in me to stumble, it'd be better for them if a millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Do you see, probably should have chosen a different verb, (laughs) S-E-E, the connection with our story in Mark 11. The temple mount, Mount Zion, Israel's pride and joy has become unclean like pigs and is making the nations stumble. And Jesus says it's headed for the sea, the place of destruction and death, which is essentially what happens less than a generation later in AD 70 when the Romans invade Jerusalem. Verse 24, then, is not some just kind of reckless blank check that's fallen to us out of the sky. It's a precious promise, yes, but it assumes we're asking not for something foolish and that we're asking finally for what accords with God's will. Pray big prayers because we're praying to a big God, but how do I know that there's an assumed condition here that we're praying in accordance with God's will because in less than 72 hours, Jesus himself is going to be on his face in Gethsemane, sweating blood, asking his father to please remove the cup of suffering with one asterisk. Yet not my will, but yours be done. God does great things through faith, through prayer, but only, and here's how Jesus ends, only if We're quick to forgive. Interesting note to end on, isn't it? Only if you're quick to forgive, he says, verse 25. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. If all these themes seem a bit whiplashy, (laughs) all right, Just consider this. Jesus is not actually changing the subject. The things he's talking about here, faith, prayer, forgiveness, are the very things people were supposed to be able to find in the temple, but were not. The very last book Tim Keller wrote before he went to be with the Lord was on this topic of forgiveness, and here's what he said. Quote, forgiveness. And and this this is one of those quotes where it's, we're not talking abstractly here. This is one of those quotes that might be painful to hear because forgiveness is not an easy thing. Quote, forgiveness is a form of voluntary suffering. Forgiveness is a form of voluntary suffering. In forgiving, rather than retaliating, you make a choice to bear the cost Forgiveness is granted before it's felt. Remember that in your life. Forgiveness is granted before it's felt, not felt before it's granted. It's a promise to not exact the price of sin from the person who hurt you. It's likely you've always thought, well, 
I have to feel it before I can grant it. I have to start feeling less angry before I can stop holding them liable. If you wait to feel it before you grant it, you'll never grant it. You'll just remain in anger prison. So what's the through line here? It's that bitterness is corrosive to faith and therefore corrosive to prayer. And faith is demonstrated. How do we demonstrate our faith? Not only in praying, but we also demonstrate our faith in forgiving. It takes immense faith, doesn't it, to leave vengeance to God. It takes immense faith not to retaliate, immense faith to bear the cost, absorb the cost rather than exact the cost on someone else. It takes immense faith to entrust someone who's hurt you into God's hands. Well, in conclusion, how is it that the end of verse 25, the very end of verse 25 can be true? That the holy God of heaven can do this, can forgive our sins, not just vertically, but horizontally, not just our sins against him, but against one another, but our sins above all against him. Well, we've already seen part of the answer. We've already seen that in the death of Jesus Christ, the curtain separating the temple, we've heard the sound of that ripping curtain that was separating us from God's presence. And in our passage this morning, what have we seen? Where have we gone? Well, we've gone from a tree to a temple and back to the tree with a final note sounded on forgiveness. And sure enough, all those themes are going to converge once more in a matter of days when the true temple is broken on a tree for the sins of the world. Friends, he bled not only so that we would be forgiven, but also so that we would have power to do what we can't do in ourselves, power to live lives that mediate blessing from the heart of Virginia to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that through your Son, Jesus Christ, you have flung open access to paradise, to your presence once again. Lord, we pray that we would be a church that is marked by faith and prayer and forgiveness as we rehearse the glories of gospel grace. And Lord, we pray that we would live out of that joy for your glory and for the good, not only of the neighborhoods here, but of the nations around the world. And we pray these things in the beautiful name of your son. Amen.